I'm dreaming of a white booyah. Just like all the booyahs I used to know. <laughs> it's Christmas. Merry Booyah, and to all a good Booyah. For everyone listening, this is episode 10 of The Last Stand, the first and last bastion of hope that is the First Amendment and the free expression of a righteous opinion in America. That's right, folks. It's freedom. Never goes out of style, and I am arguably one of the coolest old guys wearing it. It's Christmas, celebrated almost universally in the world on December 25th, that's when we celebrate it here in America. This is the time for giving, the time for merrymaking, celebrating. Uh, it's a time for the kids. This is a time for gathering of family. We all have gatherings and dinners where we have ham, turkey, uh, definitely apple pie, sweet potato pie if you're in the South, and my personal favorite, mincemeat pie. You know, nobody eats mincemeat pie anymore. You can't, you can't find it anywhere. That's so sad. Uh, but it's also the time of year that we celebrate something greater than all of that, right? But more on that later. Merry Christmas, folks. Uh, and uh, I know that's going to spark some outrage among the left as they're now characterizing Christmas as a white supremacist holiday. I know you're listening out there, you communists. Uh, but you know what? Merry Christmas to you, too. Have a merry communist Christmas, you commies. <laughs> commie Christmas is like regular Christmas, but commie Christmas is where the commies steal your presents from you and give it to other people. In, in commie legend, commie claws actually comes to your house in an armored tank, parks it on the roof, breaks into your house, and takes the gifts from underneath your tree, keeps most of them for himself, and then distributes the rest in pieces around the rest of the country. Right? Commie claws? Oh, yeah. Merry Christmas, folks. This is the Christmas edition of The Last Stand. Welcome to it. Well, here we are, folks, the final episode of the year. It's Christmas, 2021. And uh, I have to say, wow, holy dog shit. Uh, the end of the year is here, and uh, New Year is rapidly approaching. Uh, it's crazy how fast things went, right? Um, I think I've got, uh, what, 10 legitimate episodes uh, and a few little odds and ends uh, into this thing. So, you know, next year, the new season starts in January, of course, uh, and I hope to have at least 12, right? I think I will. But uh, And that leads me to, here we go, folks, it's time. Uh, let's get to the listener report here, the analytics report of this uh, show, because I find it fascinating to see, you know, just how people are interacting with the show, uh, you know, in terms of where it's being listened to, okay? It's just fascinating to me. Remember those old posts where people would post pictures uh, on, you know, like Facebook and say they were, you know, they, they used to say they were showing people, you know, how just one post on the internet could reach thousands, you know, in such a short period of time? 
I kind of liken the listener report to that. It's it's just fascinating to watch how the numbers are going in terms of where the show's being listened to. So here's the analytics on the show. 99% of my listeners are, of course, in the United States, okay? Uh, interestingly enough, 42% are in North Carolina. Now, the, the way they break this down is 42% of the total listenership. Now, I don't, I don't exactly know how many listeners or how many people are listening to this thing, but 42% of the total listenership is in North Carolina alone. 10% are in California, in places like Lompoc, Inglewood, and uh, newly arrived Los Angeles, Hello, L.A. 9% are in Iowa. I don't know what they do in Iowa, but apparently in Iowa City, 100% of my listenership out of that 9%, they're in Iowa City, uh, and apparently they listen to the show. Welcome to the show, Iowa City in Iowa. 8% in D.C. (laughs) 8% in Washington, D.C. There's like a couple cats in D.C. that are listening, either because they like the show or they're putting me on a list, right? Uh, 7% are in New York, uh, in places like Buffalo, Middletown, Campbell Hall. Uh, I have no idea where that is, but welcome to the show, Campbell Hall. And uh, Cortland, hi to Cortland. Nobody in the city of New York yet, right? But there's always hope, okay? Uh, Washington State is at 7%, Georgia is at 6%, Tennessee is at 5%, and Wisconsin the home of St. Kyle of Kenosha. Uh, they're at 2%. Uh, then you get into the other states, right, uh, where we're at like 1% or less of the total listenership. Uh, that's about 10 other states in that category, okay? Now, you 10 other states, uh, you know, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, uh, you know, it, all you guys, keep on listening, folks. Um, and remember, those are rookie numbers you're, you're putting out there right now, Okay. They're rookie numbers. You got to bump those numbers. I got to bump those numbers up. Those are rookie numbers in this racket. And then we have, of course, our friends in Australia. The resistance continues, folks. You've heard of the camps that they've had down there for the uh, unvaccinated, right? You know, when the next elections come in Australia, I hope we see a wave of freedom cleaning that place out. I, I You know, they're listening at 1% or less. Uh, but it's a it's a complete police state down there, so I'm not surprised. Be free, Australia. Keep fighting the good fight. I'm rooting for you, okay? We have 1% or less in Singapore. I think I know where that's coming from. Um, interestingly enough, something about Singapore, uh, it was founded in 1819 by uh, Sir Stamford Raffles as a trading post of the British Empire. In 1867, the colonies in Southeast Asia were reorganized, and Singapore uh, came under the direct control of Britain as part of a uh, as part of a settlement called the Straits Settlements. Uh, during the Second World War, Singapore was occupied by Japan. Uh, that was in 1942. It returned to British control as a separate crown colony following Japan's surrender in 1945. Singapore gained self governance in 1959 and in 1963 became part of the new Federation of Malaysia, okay? And, and that was alongside Malaya, North Borneo, and Sarawak. Sarawak? Sarawak. Uh. Uh, anyway, ideological differences led Singapore being expelled from the Federation two years later, and it became an independent country. 
after early years of uh, turbulence and despite lacking natural resources, uh, the nation rapidly developed to become one of the four Asian tigers based on external trade, becoming a highly developed country. Okay, It's ranked ninth on the UN Human Development Index and has the second highest GDP per capita in the world. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, it's a major financial and shipping hub consistently ranks the most expensive city to live in uh, since at least 2013. Uh, it's a tax haven. Uh, Singapore is placed highly in key social indicators. Oh, here we go. Education, healthcare, quality of life, personal safety, and housing. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, they have a home ownership rate of 91%. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, people in Singapore enjoy one of the world's longest life expectancies. Uh, it has the fastest internet connection speeds and is one of the lowest, uh, has one of the lowest infant mortality rates in the world. Wow. Singapore. Who'd have known? Welcome to, uh, welcome, welcome to the show, right? Uh, and uh, here's, here's some new news. Uh, the newest listener out there comes from if you can believe it, <laughs> Lichtenstein, 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 it's Lichtenstein, I think. Who and what is Lichtenstein? Well, uh, Lichtenstein is officially called the Principality of Lichtenstein. It's a German-speaking microstate located in the Alps between Austria and Switzerland. Lichtenstein is a semi-constitutional monarchy headed by the Prince of Lichtenstein, you notice Liechtenstein is used a lot, that word. Uh, the prince's extensive powers are equivalent to those of a president in a semi-presidential system, sort of like France. Uh, it's bordered by Switzerland to the west and the south and Austria to the east and the north. It's Europe's fourth smallest country uh, with an area of just over 160 square kilometers or 62 square miles. It's got a population of 38, what, what is that, 38,000? No, it's got to be more than that, 38, 38,749,000. That was in 2019. Uh, it's divided into 11 municipalities. Uh, the capital is Vaduz, and its largest municipality is Shan. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. I hope so. My apologies if I'm not. Uh, Shan, uh, that's 100% of the listeners coming out of Liechtenstein. Good Lord. It's like a tongue twister time. Uh, it's the smallest country to border two countries in the world, right? <laughs> Liechtenstein. Uh, all, you know, when I, th when I hear Liechtenstein, I, I remember, you all remember that movie, uh, Knight's Tale? You know, the Heath Ledger movie, where he plays a jouster uh, back in medieval times, right? Uh, his character's name was Sir Oric of Liechtenstein. That, God, that was an awesome movie, wasn't it? It was just a really fun movie. Yes! Behold, my Lord Oric! The rock! The hard place! Like a wind from Geldland, he sweeps by, blown far from his homeland in search of glory and honor. We walk in the garden of his turbulence! Yeah! 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 My lords, my ladies, and everybody else here not sitting on a cushion. Yeah! 
ourselves equals. For you are all equally blessed. For I have the pride, the privilege, nay, the pleasure of introducing to you a knight sired by knight. A knight who can trace his lineage back beyond Charlemagne. I first met him atop a mountain near Jerusalem, praying to God, asking his forgiveness for the Saracen blood spilt by his sword. Next, he amazed me still further in Italy when he saved a fatherless beauty from the would-be ravishings of her dreadful Turkish uncle. And so, without further gilding the lily, and with no more ado, I give to you the seeker of serenity, the protector of Italian virginity, the enforcer of our Lord God, the one, the only, Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein! Yeah! We could do this. We've done it, boy. That's silver in your hand. And then we can do this. We can be champions. Oh, no matter what, a man can change his star. Damn your stomach, what? <laughs> Don't love you, William. <laughs> I know, I know. No one else will. Lichtenstein is a member of the United Nations the European Free Trade Association, and the Council of Europe. Although it's not a member of the European Union, it participates in both the Schengen area and the European Economic Area. It has a customs union and a monetary union with Switzerland. So, uh, welcome to the show, Liechtenstein. Uh, bravo. All right. So there you have it, folks. The listener report. Fascinating stuff, right? <laughs> um I've got about 400 total listens of all the episodes, uh, with about 35 individual listens for each episode on average. Um, so there's at least <laughs> 35 individual listeners. Oh, that's awesome, right? Um, <laughs> so minuscule. Um, but it's awesome, though. Don't, don't get me wrong, man. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's awesome that I even have five people, you know? And here we have th- 35 at least. Okay, I suspect it may be more, but I'm, I'm I can't really I can't really decipher yet uh, how it breaks down because right now we're like breaking it down week by week. I think, um, but anyway, look, it does it, it thirty five or thirty five hundred. I, I don't care. Now, of course, I'd love to see that grow. So uh, share the shit out of this podcast, okay? I, I don't get any monetary gain from any of this for doing this. Although, I, 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 honestly, I'd like to explore that later. But what I do get is inspiration, okay? I'm not unique in any way in my views, okay? And if I had to guess, uh, people out there probably disagree with me as much as others agree with me, okay? And one can say with a certain degree of accuracy that, uh, I, look, I'm, I'm really an opinionated guy, okay? But with all the big names out there doing podcasts and broadcast radio... Uh, I do hope 
that the perspectives I bring to the table and the feeling behind those perspectives, why I feel the way I do, and my belief that you feel the same way about many a thing that we discuss here, I do hope that you get something from all of this, okay? And like I said before, uh, I don't care if I have 35 or 3,500 listeners. I just like the idea that even though you and I have probably never met, I get to talk with you from time to time and share perspectives and principles that I believe in. And I will say this, the one thing that's got me jazzed is the 18 to 22-year-olds, okay? About 2% of the total listening audience is 18 to 22-year-olds. Now, there's a, there's a likelihood that a lot of what I have to say doesn't vibe with the young folks out there. You know, it, but if I had to guess, I'd say that there's a lot of young folks, folks out there who, who would agree, okay? Uh, the fact that I have some in this age group, 18 to 22, uh, that's pretty jazzy. You know, I'm kind of digging that. And I hope whomever they are, I hope that they share this podcast. I hope more of them listen in. I hope more of you guys listen in because it's important. You know, most kids that age aren't really interested in a lot of what we talk about here. They, they just have other things going on in their life. You know what I mean? They haven't, they haven't gotten to that point yet. Now, look, I was a nerd, okay? I got into politics early. Okay, I'm a nerd for history. Uh, I'm, I'm a nerd for the Constitution. And, and actually, that kind of grew over the years as well, right? The, uh, the Constitution, also known as the Big C. You know, I got, in, I got interested in the political processes and the concepts and principles of constitutional republic like ours, okay? And like I said, 18 to 22 years old, generally, they're not interested in stuff like that until they get, you know, knocked around for, for a while, you know, in life, you know? Uh, and things start affecting them, and they can see, you know, what affects them in life. But I'll, t- I'll tell you, I bet that more of them do take an interest in such things these days, and more are taking an interest in what goes on in America. And I hope more of them find their way to this show, uh, you know, for a perspective that they won't find on the likes of CNN or the mainstream media, or even in their own school these days, okay? So 18 to 22-year-olds, keep on listening. Get what you can, get what you should, and take it to heart. If conservatism and those of us who believe in a constitutional republic are the key to the continued future of this country, then you are the future of cultural and societal change armed with those principles and beliefs as your strength in restoring and maintaining our republic. So, 18 to 22-year-olds, booyah. Keep listening. So, all right, moving right along. Um, it's Christmas. <laughs> Finally, we get to it, right? We get to the thing. Uh, it is Christmas. Welcome to it. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought, you know, look, I don't want to get into the weeds of, you know, studies or, you know, e- even the history. I, I-, I do want to share some history about Christmas um, and how it's tied to Christianity. And like I said before, you don't have to be a Christian to participate in the holiday. I would just like more people to acknowledge that Christmas, or what was known as Christ Mass, uh, I would like you know more people to understand where this comes from, okay? It's not purely secular. Uh, and, it, and on the other end of the thing, uh, even though that it originates with Christ, okay, I, you know, people, I, I don't want people to feel like you have to be a Christian in order to appreciate the spirit of Christmas, either the secular part of it or the religious part of it. But, but, but we have to acknowledge 
that the religious part of it is really the thing that, you know, where we evolved and developed this particular holiday, no matter how you celebrate it, right? You know, I just want to point out some historical context and perspective and, and some facts here and there uh, with little anecdotes or anecdotes, of you, if you will. And, you know, play some Christmas music, you know, something, you know, different from the usual discussions and things that we do here. Because you can get really far into the weeds with Christmas. And I'll be honest, Christmas means something very different to me now than it did when I was young. Okay, when I was a young whippersnapper, it meant the same thing it does for children all across America today. Now, I don't I don't remember when I was first told about Santa Claus. Okay, but I do remember one of my earliest gifts. I think I was like two or three years old or some somewhere around there. It was about 100 years ago. Um, I had gotten a little plastic piano for Christmas. Okay, now this wasn't like a peanuts piano. Okay, this was a. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this was a little plastic replica of a grand piano. It was like orange with white legs, okay? And if I remember right, it, it was pretty sturdy, but I I had decided somewhere down the line that I needed the legs to come off that thing, okay, so I could play it. But anyway, there's a pretty good story about that piano and, and one night in particular uh, with that piano uh, and what I learned about that night years later. Okay, maybe maybe that's a story to tell later. But anyway, I remember that Christmas was always about the night before as much as it was about the actual day. I remember my dad hyping it up too, you know. Now, one thing you got to know about my dad, okay, he's got, <laughs> like if you ever, like if the world goes to shit, okay, and your digital functions go out, I, I promise you, guys like my dad are going to be able to figure it out. Okay, because they know how things work. Okay, it's all predicated on a foundation of technology. Okay, now to that, dad had these radios. Okay, these old analog military looking style radios set up in his room. Okay, these, these weren't regular CB styled, you know, radios. They, these weren't CB frequencies or anything like that. These things were massive. And they had these massive dials and switches and, you know, lights, you know. You, you could talk to people across the country with these things, okay. You know, imagine the old square metal military style box radios with the old tubes lit up in the back of it, okay. Dials that were backlit with orange amber lights, right. And the sounds of uh, frequencies and analog communications. And at five or six years old, when the dad said that he could talk to Mars with those radios, you took him seriously, okay? I mean, that's how serious these radios were. Uh, you know, Mars, okay, that's another story, okay? But, but the night before Christmas and just before bed, you could hear dad tracking Santa via NORAD. It was just as he said. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. You could hear NORAD tracking the claws across America. They, they would actually give him fighter escorts, okay? They'd push weather reporting and intelligence as he made his way across the world. I mean, it was just, it was, uh, it was crazy when you were five or six years old and your dad could track Santa.
There's great excitement here at North American Radar Defense Command in Boulder, Colorado, as we prepare to track that annual intercontinental flight of Santa Claus. We have four high-resolution screens tied into 180 satellite dishes throughout the Western Hemisphere, and with all of these coordinated by our master center track computer, we're ready. At this particular time, however, we don't see any unusual activity. It's still early, and I'm certain there'll be much more to tell you and your listeners as time passes. Reporting on the flight of Santa Claus, this is First Lieutenant Andy Lawrence at NORAD. My mind was blown. Because at five, six, seven years old, that's real, folks. And I didn't know anything about this guy, Santa Claus, except that every year he brought presents to the house, okay? And every year, me and my friends would talk about what presents we got from Santa like he was a real dude, and we didn't know anything. We didn't know anything. Not even years later, after I'd outgrown the whole Santa thing, and, you know, it was what, like in my 40s? when I decided to track down who this guy was supposed to be. You know, today, now I think that Santa Claus is kind of a preparation for kids, for believing in things they can't see, okay? Or it can be, right? I ain't going to go into the rabbit hole on that one, okay? Although I could. But I really didn't know where this guy had come from, where this legend had come from until many years later, in the grand scheme of things, not that long ago, okay? All right, now, Santa Claus, who's also known as Father Christmas, St. Nicholas, St. Nick, Kris Kringle, uh, quite simply Santa, okay? He's a legendary character originating from Eastern Christian culture, and it's said that he brings children gifts on Christmas Eve. He brings them toys and candy or, quite frankly, coal or nothing, depending depending on whether they're naughty or nice, right? the whole naughty or nice list. He's said to accomplish all this with the aid of Christmas elves, who make the toys in his workshop at the North Pole. And he's got eight flying reindeer. Uh, actually, I think it's, uh, what, eight, nine with Rudolph, right? I don't know, it's been a while. Yeah. Uh, he's got flying reindeer, anyway, who pull his sleigh packed with toys through the air all over the world. Okay? Now... The modern character of Santa is based on traditions surrounding the historical St. Nicholas and the English figure of Father Christmas and the Dutch figure of Sinterklaas, okay? Now, in America, Santa is generally depicted as a portly, jolly, white-bearded guy, all right, often wearing spectacles or glasses. You know, you would think by now that he'd have LASIK surgery or maybe, you know, wear contacts at least. I don't know. He wears a red coat with white fur collar and cuffs. He's got white fur cuffed red trousers. He's got a red hat with white fur. Okay, white fur seems to be the theme. Okay. He's got a black leather belt and black boots, engineer boots, if you want to know the truth. Uh, And he carries a bag full of gifts for children all over the world. Okay. Again, here in America, he's commonly portrayed as laughing in a way that sounds like ho, ho, ho. Okay. This image became popular in the United States and Canada in the 19th century due to the significant influence of the 1823 poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas. Uh, Political cartoonist Thomas Nast also played a role in the creation of Santa's image. This image has been maintained and reinforced through song, radio, television, children's books, family Christmas traditions, films, and advertising. Okay, But where does this legend originate from? 
or where does it come from? Well, as with all legends of fancy, there's historical truth from which it was born. Saint Nick, or Santa Claus, is based on the real-life 4th century Christian saint known as Saint Nicholas. Nicholas was born on March 15th, 270 AD. He died December 6th in 343 AD. He was aged 73 years old. He's venerated in all Christian denominations which venerate saints, like the Catholic religion. He has a major shrine in the Basilica di San Nicola in Bari, Italy. Uh, He is the patron saint of, get ready folks, he's the patron saint of children, coopers, sailors, fishermen, merchants, broadcasters, the falsely accused. He's the patron saint of repentant thieves, brewers, pharmacists, archers, pawnbrokers, unmarried people. (laughs) Uh, He's like the patron saint for everybody, right? He's also known as Nicholas of Bari, okay? He was an early Christian bishop of Greek descent from the maritime city of Myra in Asia Minor, okay, Uh, or Turkey, okay, during the time of the Roman Empire. Because of the many miracles attributed to his intercession, he's also known as Nicholas the Wonderworker. His reputation evolved from the pious, as was common for early Christian saints, and his legendary habit of secret gift-giving gave rise to the traditional model of Santa Claus, or Saint Nick. He also gave rise uh, to the Sinterklaas uh, of Dutch tradition. Now, very little is known about the historical Saint Nicholas. The earliest accounts of his life were written centuries after his death and contain many legendary elaborations. He's said to have been born in the Greek seaport of Patara in Lycia, in Asia Minor, okay, to wealthy Christian parents. In one of the earliest attested and most famous incidents from his life, he's said to have rescued three girls from being forced into prostitution by dropping a sack of gold coins through the window of their house each night for three nights so their father could pay a dowry for each of them. Other early stories tell him of calming a storm at sea, saving three innocent soldiers from wrongful execution, and chopping down a tree possessed by a demon. In his youth, he's said to have made a pilgrimage to Egypt and Palestine. Shortly after his return, he became Bishop of Myra. He was later cast into prison during the persecution of the Diocletian, but was released after the accession of Constantine. An early list makes him an attendee at the First Council of Nicaea, in 325 AD, but he's never mentioned in any of those writings by people who are actually at the council. Uh, Unsubstantiated legends claim that he was temporarily defrocked and imprisoned during the council for slapping a heretic. Another famous late legend tells how he resurrected three children who had been murdered and pickled in brine by a butcher planning to sell them as pork during a famine. Good lord. (laughs) You can't make this up. Accounts of St. Nicholas' life agree on the essence of his story, but modern historians disagree regarding how much of his story is actually rooted in historical fact. You think? All right. But like I said, all legends have truth in them. And there's no doubt that this guy was a real guy. Like I said, very little is known about his family and background. Uh, Very little is known. Um, Record-keeping back then was on papyrus, 
uh, and that didn't feather uh, that didn't weather too well, you know, over time. Uh, but after his parents died, Nicholas is said to have distributed their wealth to the poor, and it may very well be that his parents had an influence on him in this because he eventually built a reputation for secret gift giving, such as putting coins in the shoes of those who left them out for him, a practice that's still celebrated today on December 6th. In Monaco, the Cathedral of Our Lady Immaculate was built from 1874 on the site of St. Nicholas's Church, founded in 1252. A children's mass is still held on December 6th in that cathedral. Here's where you start seeing the element of celebrating children and, you know, where, where Christmas uh, becomes a thing about the children, okay? Today, St. Nicholas is still celebrated as a great gift giver in several Western European and Central European countries. According to one source, in medieval times, nuns used the night of December 6th to deposit baskets of food and clothes anonymously at the doorsteps of the needy. According to another source, December 6th, every sailor or ex-sailor of the Low Countries, uh, which at that time was virtually all of the male population, uh, would descend to the harbor towns to participate in a church celebration for their patron saint. On the way back, they would stop at one of the various Nicholas fairs to buy some hard-to-come-by goods, gifts for their loved ones, and invariably some little presents for their children. While the real gifts would only be presented at Christmas, the little presents for the children were given right away, courtesy of St. Nicholas. This and his miracle of him resurrecting the three butchered children made St. Nicholas a patron saint of children, and later students as well. Now, Santa Claus, okay, also evolved from Dutch traditions regarding St. Nicholas, okay? The Dutch tradition of Sinterklaas was evolved from the story of St. Nicholas. When the Dutch established the colony of New Amsterdam, they brought the legend and traditions of Sinterklaas with them. Howard G. Hageman of the New Brunswick Theological Seminary maintains that the tradition of celebrating Sinterklaas in New York existed in the early settlements of the Hudson Valley, although by the early 19th century had fallen by the wayside. St. Nicholas Park, located at the intersection of St. Nicholas Avenue and 127th Street, in an area originally settled by Dutch farmers, is named for St. Nicholas of Myra. Sinterklaas is based on the historical figure of St. Nick. Okay? He's depicted as an elderly, stately, and serious man with white hair and a long, full beard. He wears a long red cape uh, over a traditional white bishop's alb and sometimes a red stole. He dons a red mitre and ruby ring and holds a gold-colored ceremonial shepherd's staff with a fancy curled top. He traditionally rides a white horse, and in the Netherlands, the last horse that he had was called Amerigo. How interesting. Sinterklaas also carries a big red book, which records whether each child has been naughty or nice. <laughs> uh... Sinterklaas visits schools, hospitals, shopping centers, of course. He's said to ride his white-gray horse over the rooftops at night, delivering gifts through the chimney to the well-behaved children. Traditionally, naughty children risked being caught by Black Pete, who carried a jute bag and a willow cane for that purpose. Okay. 
So th- this is where, where, where we start evolving into the modern-day Santa Claus. Now, uh, before going to bed, children put their shoes next to the fireplace chimney of the coal-fired stove or the fireplace, okay? They leave the shoes with a carrot or some hay in it and a bowl of water nearby for the horse, okay? Uh, and the children sing a Sinterklaas song before they go to bed. And then the next day, they find some candy or small presents in their shoes, okay? Typical Sinterklaas treats traditionally include mandarin oranges, uh, something called pepernoten, uh, speculos, sometimes filled with an almond paste. I guess it's a kind of pastry, I guess. Some sort of uh, chocolate letter, okay? Usually the first letter of the child's name, which is made out of chocolate. Uh, he's le- he leaves chocolate coins, okay? Something called beast. These are animal-shaped figures made of sugar. Uh, newer treats include gingerbread biscuits, uh, or a figurine of Sinterklaas made of chocolate and wrapped in colored aluminum foil. See, this is, this is where we really get into the modern-day Santa Claus, okay, between the two. In the Netherlands, St. Nicholas's Eve, which is 5 December, okay, became the chief occasion for gift-giving during the winter holiday season. The evening is called Sinterklaasavond, okay, or otherwise known as Sinterklaas Evening, okay, on the evening of December 5th, parents, family, friends, or acquaintances pretend to act on behalf of Sinterklaas, or his helpers, and they fool the children into thinking that Sinterklaas has really given them some presents. Okay? Now, over there, this may be done through a note that's found, okay, explaining where the presents are hidden, and sometimes a neighbor will knock on the door pretending to be uh, Zwarte Piet, or probably Black Pete. Uh, and leave the sack outside for the children to retrieve, okay? This varies per family, okay, depending on what they want to do. When the presents arrive, the living room is decked out with them, and uh, much as on Christmas Day in English-speaking countries, December 6th, Sinterklaas departs without any ado, and all festivities are over. In the southern Netherlands and Belgium, most children have to wait until the morning of December 6th to receive their gifts, and Sinterklaas is seen as a festivity almost exclusively for children. The shoes are filled with a poem or a wish list for Sinterklaas and carrots, hay, sugar cubes for the horse, that whole thing, okay? Poems from Sinterklaas usually accompany the gifts, bearing a personal message for the receiver. It is usually a humorous poem, which often teases the recipient for well-known bad habits or other character flaws or deficiencies. Okay, we've turned that around now. Kids write Santa. Santa doesn't write kids. But you can see how this has all evolved, and it all stemmed from St. Nicholas, from the Roman Empire, and is uh, rooted in Christianity, the idea of gift-giving and helping the needy and leaving little treats for kids and how it evolves, you know, into Sinterklaas with the gift-giving for kids, you know, for children, and all of that. And eventually, of course, we get to the modern-day Santa Claus, okay, which is celebrated almost, you know, virtually throughout the world, and especially here in America. So, we find out through history that while the practices of celebration and gift-giving were certainly around before Christianity for other reasons, it is Christianity that formed the very concept of a gift giver, most times unseen, 
performing miracles of kindness. And it, it evolved into what we know as the modern-day gift-giver and magical being of Santa Claus. Very noble in its beginning, it became something for children. And we know that God had a very special place for children. And I'd like to think that because of that, the traditions with origins in Christianity evolved into something very special for our children. But I also think in part that these attributes applied to one individual and told to children at very young ages leads me to think that perhaps this is kind of a preparation of sorts for children to believe in the unseen, at least in terms of what Christmas is really about. Because something like Santa Claus is certainly easier to explain to young children than the circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ. I told you that my understanding of Christmas and the celebration of it had changed a long time ago. And over the years, it has become more profound to me because I'm the father of my son. And in the next little bit, we'll talk about that. Because for me, the concept of gift-giving changed profoundly much earlier than 343 AD. But for now, I'd like you to hear what Christmas sounded like to me when I was growing up, when it seems to me that times were genuinely different than they are today. Now, those times aren't forgotten, and in some ways, they still exist today. But maybe some of you will feel the difference I'm talking about between then and now in a couple of these Christmas songs. I imagine a six-year-old boy or six-year-old girl in their jammies, gazing at the splendor of lights on the tree and bright packages brought by the jolly old elf himself, wondering which one to open first. And the dad pulling one out because Santa would want you to open this one first, boy. Because later that morning, the dad would be playing with your toys as much as you'd be because they were so cool. I think of how good the house felt. The smells of turkey and sweet potatoes with the marshmallows on top, the mincemeat pie, mmm. And the sound of my mother talking to my Aunt Rose on the phone that hung from the kitchen wall about not forgetting the cranberry sauce for dinner. <laughs> Looking outside and seeing four feet of newly fallen snow. The neighborhood, quiet, blanketed in Christmas. Which by noon would be filled with the sounds of kids playing. Sleds being driven down the driveways. Snow forts being built for the inevitable snowball fight to come. Family stopping by, bringing food, presents. This was the soundtrack of a very special time for me, a very special time for children that was Christmas. Man, it doesn't show signs of stopping, and I brought me some corn for popping. The lights are turned way down low, let it snow, let it snow. When we finally kiss goodnight How I'll hate going out in the storm But if you really hold me tight All the way home I'll be warm And the fire is slowly dying And my dear, we're still goodbye But as long as you'd love me so Let it snow, let it snow and snow When we finally kiss goodnight How I'll hate going out in the storm But if you really grab me tight 
All the way home I'll be warm Oh, the fire is slowly dying And my dear, we're still goodbying But as long as you love me so Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow Beginning to look a lot like Christmas Toys in every store But the prettiest sight to see Is the holly that will be On your own front door A pair of hop-along boots And a pistol that chooses The wish of Barney and Ben Dolls that'll talk and will go for a walk Is the hope for Janice and Jen And Mom and Dad can hardly wait For school to start again Beginning to look a lot like Christmas Everywhere you go Now there's a tree in the Grand Hotel One in the park as well The sturdy kind that doesn't mind the snow It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas <laughs> Soon the bells will start and the thing that will make them ring is the carol that you sing right within your heart. A pair of hop-along boots and a pistol that shoots Is the wish of Barney and Ben Dolls that'll talk and will go for a walk Is the hope for Janice and Jen And the mom and dad can hardly wait for school to start again It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Soon the bells will start the thing that will make them ring is the carol that you sing right within your heart. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. Blixin' and blixin' and all his reindeers pullin' on the reins Bells are ringin', children singin', all is merry and bright So hang your stockings and say your prayers, cause Santa Claus comes tonight Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane He's got a bag that's filled with toys for boys and girls again Hear those sleigh bells jingle jangle, oh what a beautiful sight so jump in bed and cover your head, cause Santa Claus comes tonight.
come Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. He doesn't care if you're rich or poor, he loves you just the same. Santa Claus knows we're all God's children, that makes everything right. So fill your hearts with Christmas cheer, cause Santa Claus comes tonight. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. He'll come around when chimes ring out that it's Christmas morn again. Peace on earth will come to all if we just follow the light. So let's give thanks to the Lord above, cause Santa Claus comes tonight. Come Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. Vixen and Blixen, all his reindeers pulling on the rain. Bells are ringing, children singing, all is merry and bright. Hang your stockings and say your prayers, cause Santa Claus comes tonight. And I'm back. Welcome back, folks, to the last episode of the season here at The Last Stand. It's Christmas. And uh, soon this will all be over. And season two of The Last Stand will be in the works starting with January's episode one. I have no idea what we'll be talking about. I don't know exactly what I'll be pissed off about in January, but uh, I promise it'll be something. It'll probably have something to do with communists. Uh, You know, it's always something, right? I mean, I kind of alluded to the latest stupidity earlier in the show here uh, that's coming out from the left. In an article uh, by Fox News reporter Justin Haskins, he writes, Each Christmas, tens of millions of American households gather together to celebrate the holiday season. They share memories and meals with one another, and in the case of Christian families, attend church services that direct their attention to the deeper meaning behind the holiday season. Unfortunately, though, not everyone sees the benefits of Christmas. Black Lives Matter, one of the country's most influential Activist organizations wants to fundamentally transform Christmas as a part of its larger war to disrupt white supremacist capitalism. Oh, boy. BLM is further calling for the consumers to abandon white corporate banks because they finance gentrification, prisons, and environmental degradation. And instead, they believe that Americans should just put their money exclusively into black-owned financial institutions. (laughs) Folks, I'm telling you, their whole objective is to segregate and then destroy every good thing we have in this country over a lie. Now, that's all I'm saying, because I'm getting spun up already here. But it's stuff like that that I'm sure there'll be plenty to rail at in 2022. So get ready, folks. So we've established the history of the Santa Claus. We've traced the history of Santa Claus and his giving of gifts to children across the globe to the acts of one man, the acts of a Christian whose faith and works were rooted in Christianity. We followed the evolution of his selfless acts and charity and generosity, all the way to the Sinterklaas of Dutch lore, and we discovered that the combination of these two stories eventually led to the modern-day version of Santa Claus here in America. Such history and legend serve a purpose, in my opinion. The desire to do good in the world, the desire to bring joy and happiness to our children and families, to give unto others simply for the absolute joy of giving a gift 
to your loved ones. For love is what inspired such a thing as Santa Claus. And it was love that inspired the event we know as Christmas. And it was certainly love that inspired the man known as St. Nicholas. It was love that inspired the day that we remember each year. And it was a much greater love that is remembered going farther back in history than many may know. The day is remembered for the act of giving gifts, to be sure. Okay? But it is remembered for the greatest singular gift, not for one man, not even for one nation. No, this was a gift given to the entirety of mankind. And on this day, December 25th, we remember the greatest gift given of all. From my perspective, God in all his wisdom and generosity had known that mankind would need a savior, yeah? One savior for all time, to bridge the chasm between men and God. And for all time, men would need to have faith that would be strengthened beyond those times and throughout history. That faith would be strengthened through the telling and retelling and the observance of one day of the birth of the Christ child. This Savior would be born on this earth, live among men, and then he would die for them. This, a gift from God, to save his creation in need of salvation. This gift was honored by men bearing gifts. A curious thing, don't you think, to present gifts to the gift giver? And yet, this is precisely the tradition that we practice every year on Christmas. The workings of God to present this gift to mankind were infinitely more intensive than elves in a workshop making toys. But as history would reveal, the king known as Herod would seek to make the gift from God in Christ no more. Biblical history is a history of man and his God. And certainly there are many, many rabbit holes and winding roads that one can take to discern and learn about a great many things. But it's also a very simple thing from my perspective. Faith requires no study. It requires no proof. It doesn't rely on records. Faith encourages all of that, but it does not require it, as I will demonstrate soon enough. Now, in the days when Herod was king of Judea, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth in Galilee to announce to Mary, who was betrothed to a man named Joseph, that a child would be born to her and she was to name him Jesus, for he would be the Son of God. When the time of the birth drew near, Caesar Augustus commanded a census of Roman domains, and Joseph took Mary to Bethlehem, the ancient city of David. It came to pass that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Since there was nowhere for them to stay in the town, the infant was laid in a manger, while angels announced his birth to shepherds who worshipped him as the Messiah. And in accordance with Jewish law, his parents presented the infant Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem. And it was at this time that the Magi arrived, following the star which portended the birth of the Messiah, the light of the world. Now, about the Magi. These were believers, folks, okay? We know them as the three wise men, the wise men, you know, uh, the three kings, okay? The word magi comes from the Greek magos, meaning one of a learned and priestly class. The Persian word used to describe these men in their society was magush, meaning magician. In the ancient Middle Eastern world, these magi were trusted advisors to kings. They were learned men, 
proficient in the knowledge of mathematical calculations, astronomy, medicine, astrology, alchemy, dream interpretation, and history, as well as practitioners of magic and paranormal arts. Ancient kings back then needed and relied upon magi for advice and discernment as modern rulers rely on their advisors. The Magi in the Bible came from the East. The East at the time of Christ's birth meant Medea, Persia, Assyria, and Babylonia, countries now encompassed by Iran and Iraq. Interestingly enough, and despite the Christmas carol we've come to know, there were not just three wise men to visit the birth of Jesus. The Magi were also not kings. They did not come to the manger scene in Bethlehem, and their names were not Gaspar, Melchior, and Belshazzar, okay? Oregon, who was a theologian, philosopher, and devoted Christian in uh, biblical times, was the first to give these names to these wise men, okay? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how many Magi had actually arrived. It only says that Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Legend and Christmas carols have blindly assumed that there were only three wise men, or three Magi, because there were three gifts mentioned, and because Oregon had given them three names, okay? Three gifts, he figured three kings, or three wise men, three magi, so he had given them three names, okay? So that's what happened there. All we know for sure is that some magi had made the long journey from the east to adore the one who had been born king of the Jews. As I said, these were learned men, and it is believed that through diligent study of Scripture, they had figured out when and where the Christ would be born. Others still believe that once the angels had given the word to the shepherds, word had spread like wildfire, and they had heard the news. And upon hearing this news, they set out to find the newborn Jesus, who would be the King of Kings. They had arrived at the kingdom of Judea, which was ruled by Herod, a Roman appointee, and a paranoid, power-hungry king. The Magi had asked of Herod, Where is the one who had been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, Herod, who was a jealous king, had advised the Magi to find Jesus and then return to him. Once the Magi had told him of the star's location, Herod sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for this child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Although, Herod had no such plan to worship the child. In fact, he had planned to murder him. God, working as God does, came to Joseph in a dream and warned him to flee Bethlehem. And so Joseph obeyed God, and he fled Bethlehem. It's believed that he, Mary, and Jesus had moved to Jerusalem and then had fled to Egypt as Herod enacted his evil plans. Now the Magi had journeyed to Jerusalem to worship the child, and the North Star had showed them the way. This small group of Gentile men, these Magi, dedicated to the scriptures, were rewarded for their faith in the truth and used by God in a most extraordinary way, being privileged not only to experience the fulfillment of the prophecy they had long studied, even to the extent of actually seeing the Messiah with their own eyes, but also to be allowed to contribute to God's plan so significantly in the giving of expensive gifts of gold, myrrh, and frankincense, with a gold representing his deity, 
as is often the case in symbolism of the temple, gold being rare and precious and glorious, the myrrh, a costly substance used in making incense and in the process of embalming, representing his humanity taken on in order to die for us, and the sweetness of the frankincense representing the acceptability of his sacrifice. These valuable treasures almost certainly funded the escape of Jesus and his family to Egypt and supported them while they were there as Herod reigned the terror and murder he had planned for the Christ child himself. These were the first gifts to be offered by men on the day that would become Christmas. Now, having worshipped the divine infant, they did not return to Jerusalem to Herod as he had ordered them to, because God, working as God does, warned the Magi in a dream to return to their country by another route, avoiding King Herod altogether. By the time the Magi had begun their journey home, Herod had realized that his scheme to find the child would not be successful, and this is why he ordered that all the male children two years old and younger at Bethlehem and its surroundings be killed. He thought that the infant, who he considered a rival, would be among the dead children. But Joseph, Mary, and Jesus had already evaded Herod's evil plan. And the gifts offered by men on the very first Christmas, the day of Jesus' birth, had been used to fulfill the prophecy and to save the life of the Christ child. According to the Orthodox Church in America, 14,000 infants were killed by King Herod in Bethlehem. These murdered infants thus became the first martyrs for Christ. Now, just to give you an idea of who this Herod was and what kind of a man he was, the rage of Herod fell also on Simeon the Elder, the king's God-receiver, who had declared before everyone in the temple that the Messiah had been born. When the elder died, Herod did not give permission for him to be properly buried. And on the orders of King Herod himself, the prophet and priest Zechariah was also killed. He was murdered in Jerusalem between the temple and the altar because he would not tell the whereabouts of his son, John, the future Baptist of the Lord. The depravity and evil born of his insane jealousy would know no bounds. But the wrath of God soon fell upon Herod himself, for he was struck with a horrid condition, and he died. He was eaten by worms while he was still alive. But before his death, the evil king murdered the chief priests and the scribes of the Jews. His brother, his sister, and her husband, he murdered his own wife. And he had ordered the killing of his three sons and 70 men of wisdom who were members of the Sanhedrin. And it is said that he initiated this entire bloodbath so that the day of his death would not be one of rejoicing, but one of mourning. But in time, and over time, no one remembers Herod. And in time, mourning gave way to rejoicing. We remember the gift of God, from God, and we remember the gifts given to honor that gift. This, in my mind, is the first true Christmas the first Christmas tradition, 
the first true exchange of gifts, and it was between God and mankind. And for me, it is the truth and a matter of faith. My belief in Christmas, the goodness of the Santa Claus and the merriment of the season, would never leave me. And like many of you, I still enjoy those very things today. The lessons we can learn from the history of it all and the memories and the traditions that make this time of year so special and wonderful for our children and our families. None of that has changed for us. None of that has changed for me. But inevitably, we grow older from children and move into adulthood. And we outgrow the idea of Santa Claus. But we never forget that for all those years as children, we believed. We had faith in the inherent goodness of it. We celebrated it with our loved ones, and we still do. But as I said, the true meaning of Christmas changed for me a long time ago. The concept of Santa Claus, the giving of gifts, and all the joy that that brings to people is a good one, and it is born of the very Christian faith in a history that many in this country have forgotten. And if I could have faith as a child in a jolly old elf and his nine tiny reindeer bringing gifts and toys to me, then how could it be so difficult to have faith in a God who would send his son as a singular gift to mankind? And how profound is it that the exchanging of gifts on a holiday that we would come to know as Christmas would first take place between God and men so many years ago? It is something that I have thought about for many years, and still do. Now I'll be right back, folks. Through the snow, up in a one-horse open sleigh, 
Oh, the fields we go, we're gonna jingle all the way. Bells on bobtails ring, and everybody's gonna swing. Look at that. Laugh and sing and have a fling while the bells go jingling. And I'm back. How do you like that nutty jingle bells, huh? That's some pretty jazzy stuff going on right there. That's Al Hurt, folks. Uh, nutty jingle bells. First released in 1965, I believe. Yeah, I was... Uh, <laughs> I, I remember it when it was still new. <laughs> it's about 100 years ago, right? Uh, so, uh, look, we're getting right at the top of the hour here. Uh, I don't want to keep you any longer. And, um, but before I go, I wanted to share this story about Junia because I thought it was very poignant, uh, for the times. So, um, I'm going to share this with you and then, uh, and then we'll sign off as the last episode of the season. My boy Junia is autistic. He's always spent a lot of time in the room of his mind. But I've always maintained that there is a little boy in there, and he's very much like other little boys everywhere. Junior turns 14 this year, but in some ways, he's still the six-year-old little boy with those curious, blazing blue eyes. He doesn't second-guess me. He understands that what I tell him and the things that I teach him, the things that I talk about, are true and observable. He's never disobeyed me, and he's never questioned me. And because of that, I give him nothing less than the truth. Sometimes it's difficult to gauge what he might think of the things that people tell him, especially when we speak of things that he can't see, like Santa Claus. Why, just the other day, he asked his mother if Santa was coming to Pawpaw's house. He wanted to make sure that Santa himself knew where to drop the loot. When his mother told me this, I could almost hear him smacking his chops thinking about the booty that he'd score this year. And Mama assured him that Santa knew where he was and already knew exactly where Papa's house was. And that is the innocent in him. The child, my little six-year-old boy with those blazing blue eyes. He didn't question it. He took it on faith. So the other day, we were riding along, and I got to thinking about that. He doesn't question what we say, but I wondered, what happens if we question him? Junior, I said, as an intro to our usual discourse. Yes, Junior replied, as per usual. Junior, I want to ask you something, and I want you to think about it in your head. Okay, he said. You ready for me to ask a question? To which he replied, in the affirmative. Junior, you know about Santa Claus, yes? 
Yes, he said. Well, what do you know? And Junior looked genuinely thoughtful for a second before saying, I don't know, in that sing-song reply I know so well. Well, let me ask you this, Junior. Is Santa Claus real? It surprised me not only how quickly he answered the question, but how certain and how convicted he was of it. No, he replied. To which I said, really? And Junior replied again in the affirmative. Now, I didn't go any further. Genuinely surprised at the answer and not knowing at that moment what to say, I simply said, well, okay then. Now, sometimes the Junior will answer yes or no, almost blindly, if he's busy with his iPad building the Matrix. So, sometimes you have to ask twice, which prompts him to actually think about the question he's being asked. Sometimes he has to change his answer, and sometimes not. But I let this one go. He wasn't preoccupied with the Matrix, and he wasn't watching Captain Underpants or Elmo. He was just writing, looking around, listening to me. I was intrigued. So a few hours later, Junior, yes, he replied. Can I ask you a question? I asked. "Mm Mm-hmm. Are you ready for a question? Yes, said Junior. All right, here we go. Look at me, boy. And dutifully, Junior looked into my face, eyes to eyes. Is Santa Claus real? And for a brief moment, I thought the look on his face said, You poor old man, you're losing it. Asked and answered. And with the finality of a firmly held years-old belief, he responded most decidedly in the negative. No, Daddy. And so I went on. That's interesting, Junior. Tell me, how do you know Santa isn't real? After giving it some thought, he replied in the indecisive. I don't know. But you say that Santa Claus is not real. Is that right? Right, he said. Well, okay. Here we go. So I said, well, you're not wrong, Junior. And upon hearing it put that way, Junior looked at me. Which means, if you speak Junior well enough, and if you understand him well enough, this means he's waiting for more information. So I continued. Santa Claus is an idea, Junior, that started a really, really long time ago. There was a person who this idea was based on, but you're correct. Today, there's no one named Santa Claus doing all those Santa Claus things that we all know about. Now, Junior looked forward and then back at me, so I continued. But do you know, Junior, what Christmas is really, really about? Uh Uh-huh. Well, what's Christmas really about, Junior? And as decisively as he answered my first question, so he did with this one. Mommy! I couldn't help but laugh out loud. And I would have said, you're not completely wrong. Because I knew what Junior was saying. Because I speak Junior. Junior was saying that Santa wasn't real. But that that part of Christmas was really his mother. What Junior was saying was, Mama is Santa Claus. Hmm, yes, the 13-year-old boy had answered the door to the room of his mind. Let me tell you what Christmas is really, really about, Junior. 
Christmas is about a baby boy named Jesus. Jesus? Junior asked, almost in a wistful wonder. Yes, Jesus. His birthday is celebrated on December 25th. Do you know what December 25th is? To which he exclaimed quite confidently, Christmas! Yes, Junior, you're correct. Now, Jesus, born on Christmas Day, would bring us a present. One present. Now, we can't see it, and we won't find it under the tree. But he brought us all a present. And it is a special present, Junior, for special people like you. Now, Junior's wheels were spinning full out, I could tell. And some of what I've told you in this episode about the first Christmas, I conveyed to him. I told him the story as best I could. And through it all, he never interrupted me and he never questioned me. He took it all in faith. So tell me, Junior, after all I've told you, what is Christmas really, really about? And Junior answered again very confidently, Jesus. Yes, Junior, Jesus. Now can you tell me, is Jesus real? And without hesitation, Junior answered in the affirmative. Yes. Are you sure, Junior? Yes. Now, I hadn't told him that Jesus had been born a long time ago and that he wouldn't be seen at the local department store with a long line of kids waiting to sit in his lap. So I said, okay then. Now, Jesus brought a special present for special people, right? Right, said Junior. So tell me, who is special people? And without a doubt, Junior replied, enthusiastically certain of the answer. Mommy. And upon saying this, Junior smiled his six-year-old smile with those ice-blue eyes on that 13-year-old boy face. And with that, I laughed a hearty laugh, almost a ho-ho-ho, if you will. And Junior laughed with me. Yes, Junior, Mommy is special people. You are right about that. To which Junior replied, most decidedly, in the affirmative. And that is Christmas, all of it. Everything that we have shared and talked about today is Christmas to me. You know, when I started this episode, I really had something a little different in mind. But as per usual, I never know where these things are going to go until I start going. And then the episode just seems to write itself. And as per usual, I went really long on the time with this episode. Some may call it being verbose but I call it inspiration. But sadly, that's all the time that I have for now, folks. But don't worry. Dry your eyes. I'll be back soon enough as the perpetually pissed-off patriot that you've all come to know. So tune in next month for Season 2 of The Last Stand, where the first and last bastion of hope that is the First Amendment and the free exercise thereof allows me to say what most of you are already thinking and where the unrelenting views and the righteous opinions expressed by me, your less-than-humble host, Wild Bill, of the Wild Bill fame, can be abrasive, unapologetically accurate, and has been found to enrage leftists everywhere. Merry Christmas, folks, and Merry Commie Christmas to all you commies out there. And remember, 
St. Kyle of Kenosha. Booyah! Yeah.